0: Hello, and welcome to The Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph.
1: And I'm Ashley Wakefield.
0: And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards, you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. And I got with me in the studio, Ashley Wakefield. Hi. (laughs) I feel like I say that every week. And (laughs) as listeners, you're probably tired of me saying the same thing every week. So Yeah,
1: we know who she is by now. (laughs) Yeah, I know,
0: right? I know. (laughs) Um, uh, Another thing I say all the time is, uh, if you've been with us, you know that uh, we are going through the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter, and we are now at chapter 41. Um, This is a continuation of the chapter right before. We're looking at um, the kind of words of God giving to the people of Jerusalem after they've been in captivity in Babylon for a while, and uh, he's been giving these messages of comfort and peace and security really to um the people of jerusalem uh it's been really cool to kind of uh go through um the chapter right before especially because we've been doing uh before that we've been in about 39 chapters worth of judgment and harsh harshness and we're finally getting to see some of the softer side of god in a lot of his uh words and it was really cool uh at uh The church that we uh, go to this week, we um, do a food night here, which is basically just like uh, coming and uh, eating and sitting down and fellowshipping with one another, and we usually have like one icebreaker question that our pastor will ask, and uh, this in particular one he asked, uh, what is your favorite Bible verse in Scripture? And I was surprised at how many of the Bible verses at the table, we had probably about 20 to 25 people there, I was surprised how many of them pulled from the book of Isaiah, and uh, it was really cool. person in particular. Uh, shout out to uh, William if you're listening because uh, he had his favorite uh, passage was in Matthew that was pulling from this chapter. So mm. it was really cool just to see all the different um, uh, people's favorite verses and how many of them are from spe- specifically this section. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to some of them and talking about it as well. But uh, for this week we are in the book Uh, not book, we are in the chapter 41, and we're going to be talking about uh, God um, kind of addressing some of the more uh, national level things that are going on. It's interesting, the first section is really not even addressed to Israel at all, but addressed to the coastlands and islands um, on the western side. This would be um, really the area that the Philistines um, kind of... uh, own and uh, an interesting historical note here is that this area, even though the Philistines eventually kind of died out, um, this area continued to be kind of owned by um, seafaring. Um, peoples. And as a result, um, when Ezra and Nehemiah come back and try and build the walls in the temple, these peoples end up being very um, harsh and treat the people of Israel that uh, come back to Jerusalem to try and rebuild their city very harshly. And so this is, I think, a little bit of an addressing to those peoples, probably because of their harsh treatment of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, we get to see some of how uh, God sees them in light of what he's doing in the world during this time period. So that's a little bit of a historical backdrop, at least for the first section. And then the last sections are really uh, God addressing Israel specifically and kind of contrasting how he treats the peoples of the coast with um, the peoples of Israel and Judah. So um, that's kind of just your opening kind of backdrop um, before we jump into this. Ashley, did you have anything um, before we jump in?
1: no i just had a question more so a statement so like you're saying the first part of this is about like is it a prophecy against how they were treat how ezra and nehemiah were treated is that what you're
0: saying no it's kind of like in between so like it opens with like be silent before me you islands right Mm -hmm. so this is obviously being addressed to the islands right Mm -hmm. Uh, and you'll see the um there's a couple of things that are uh talked about about Uh, how he's stirring something up in the east, which we'll get into and what that is and things like that. And all the way down to verse seven, that whole area, the very end ends with the peoples of the islands building idols um, Mm -hmm. to try and get security and things like that. And so Mm -hmm. it's really more of a, it's not even a prophecy against them more so as just kind of showing this viewpoint of these people on the coast and how they are try how they specifically are finding security and what they're finding security in while God is doing things in the east. Does that make sense? So it's it's not really a oh, I'm going to judge you and things like that. It's more just like a a camera that's looking at the islands and the coast.
1: Yeah, I was trying to guess figure out how you were fitting Ezra and Nehemiah into the first section because I didn't even see that. I was just trying to get more clarity on it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Basically, in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of the coast are the ones that uh, end up uh, really causing problems for Ezra and Nehemiah when they build the temple oh, okay, uh, and things you. like that. So yeah, um, so that's uh, that'll be our opening for this and let's go ahead and jump into the passage. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the East, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him, and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed, by a path his feet have not travelled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, With the first of them and with the last i am he the islands have seen it and fear the ends of the earth tremble they approach and come forward they help each other and say to their companions be strong the metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil one says of the welding it is good The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant, I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear." I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, You are a Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord, and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights, and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water, and the parched ground into springs. I will put into the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, and fir and the cypresses together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand, that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning, so we could know, or beforehand so we could say? He was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion. look. Here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. All right, so uh, this was a bit of a longer, chapter this week uh we're gonna try and uh, get through this a little bit more quickly than last week the last week was like our longest episode because i just monologued all the time so Mm -hmm. (laughs) we're gonna try and do this a little quicker but um So the opening of this, like I said before, um, opens with this really interesting addressing to these islands. Um, and in particular, whenever you see, um, the word nations be kind of addressed, you kind of know that, um, whoever's being addressed is like the Gentile nations that are kind of surrounding nations in Hebrew is the word goyim, um, which generally has a bit of a, um, reference to um, foreign peoples it's often used in context with foreign peoples uh, and so we know we're kind of looking at s- sort of people outside of Israel at this point point. Um, and he says let them come forward and speak let us meet together at the place of judgment so what's interesting is the setup of this is kind of like a trial mm-hmm. almost where they're sort of all being brought together in this like judgment of sorts um, to kind of witness how God's going to set things right in the world. Because remember, kind of broad context here is that this is after the judgment has happened against all of the nations and Israel and Judah, right? Like uh, I talked about this last week, how Assyria really was the first world power of the Middle East, and they really changed the entire world. Like it's not a exaggeration to say that the world that the people in um, the chapters of 1 through 39, the world that they knew no longer exists now in these chapters. That world was destroyed and uh, Assyria had a huge hand in accomplishing that and kings have died and like it's a completely different uh, battlefield and area now um, than it used to be. And um, so... This kind of we're left with kind of this wonder of like, okay, now that the world is completely different, what is going to happen like where other nations are still around? We're still trying to figure out how to exist in this new world. Uh, And there's this kind of this open ended question of what is God going to do now? And this is kind of where we're set up in this judgment um, kind of trial sense where. Um, God then begins to speak to these nations, uh, reminding them of what he is and so yeah. in, oh did you have something on that actually?
1: Oh, I was just going to say that I like that line where it says let the nations renew their strength so he's asking them to gather up their strength before they come to the courtroom <laughs> to basically have a case before him and I think that's a really interesting thing it's like well if you're going to come before me to argue a case against me or to fight against me then you better get your strengths together kind of thing <laughs> yep, yep. but then also I like how that's juxtaposed against what goes on later in the chapter where God is telling the Israelites that I am your strength so it's the idea that these other nations were solely on their own they had to depend depend on themselves to gather up their strength because the idols that they were worshiping were not actual gods. So their strength was solely dependent on themselves, but the Israelites had the benefit of renewing their strength in the God that they served. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. And it's interesting too, that, uh, there, uh, there's, there's generally in any time people address God in scripture in that way. There's usually always a line that God tells the person. I'm thinking specific, like this line where, like, I'm thinking specifically of Job, where uh, when jo- God comes to Job in uh, chapter 38 of Job, he says, gird yourself up like a man. More literally, like, uh, gird up your loins, which is like, protect your manhood. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's like a very uh, funny w- uh, line that I love. Yeah. In- God's like,
1: I'm not afraid of confrontation. <laughs> like, let's go. <laughs>
0: Um, which, yeah, it's it's pretty funny to me when God is very much like, renew your strength or whatever, and those types of uh, pr- prep yourself um, for this. Um, but yeah, so in verse two, um, he begins to talk about um, specifically some of the things he's done in the past and the things that he'll do in the future as evidence for Who he is. And it all kind of culminates in the end of verse four, where he says, I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. This is going to get reused actually in Revelation, where he says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Um, The Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and the Omega is kind of like the last letter. It's sort of um, used off and on, really, to kind of talk about the. him being the first and the last and this theme is uh first brought up in isaiah um hint a lot of the things in revelation actually are pulling from themes in isaiah and um it'll actually help you a lot if you're reading isaiah first before you read revelation which is always fun but um yeah so this kind of all culminates in um him kind of dictating how in the first he's raising up um, and calling um, up one from the east and uh, he's calling him to righteous righteousness to his service right and this one um, there's a lot of debate in commentaries about who this one is I personally think it's Cyrus I think um, there's going to be kind of uh, a name drop of Cyrus in a couple chapters after this and if you don't know who Cyrus is he is the king who eventually conquers babylon um he's the king of persia and he conquers babylon and then releases all of the uh people that are are enslaved in babylon specifically all the israelites um and lets them go back to um set up the temple and set up the walls of jerusalem with ezra and nehemiah Mm -hmm. and so um cyrus becomes sort of this like salvation for the people in babylon he kind of represents um this uh salvation for the Jews in particular as they're able to um, go back home finally. And he sort of represents that. And so uh, a lot of commentaries assume that um, the person being stirred up in the east, uh, Persia is almost the far east of the Middle Middle East. Uh, and so a lot of people assume that um, this one that's being stirred up from the east is um, Cyrus. Um, and so he's going to hand over nations to Cyrus, which is very true. Cyrus uh, kind of becomes a world power for a little bit. Um, he subdues Kings before him. Um, he turns them to dust with the sword. Um, we kind of get this, uh, example of how God's going to use, um, whoever this one is. Like I said, I still think it's Cyrus, but you can uh, figure out on your own if you think it's going to be someone different, but, um, he pursues them and moves on unscathed. And we have this really interesting, um, uh, kind of end, like I said before, of how God's the first and the last I am He um did you have any comment on that Ashley? before we moved on
1: um yeah kind of going back to the idea of the courtroom is that when i was looking at commentaries on this and i do agree with it and how in this passage god is basically acting throughout the entire chapter he's a- acting as both a witness to the things that he's done but also acting as a judge as well and so i think at this section here he's sort of like defending himself about who he is and then when you get to the section later on the chapter where he sort of starts making these questions like rhetorical questions or making these statements that it seems like he wants to answer but then he answers it himself because he's acting as a judge in that in that moment i thought that was interesting the dialogue the guys have How he's playing both sides of the fence and it kind of reminds you like how can he be like a witness to his witness to what he's done but then also being a judge um against the other nations as well and it kind of reminds me how god in himself is like three but then still one at the same time.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, there's very much a uh, probably a hidden uh Trinity Trinity thing going on there, which is very good to note. Um there's also interestingly um the islands that are being addressed here are kind of the far west of the land and then Persia is kind of the far east, so it's kind of uh, comparing like the far east and the far west um together and everything in between and that's kind of kind of a theme that's happening as well so we have in verse five we kind of break and go back to how what the islands think about this happening in this powerhouse of cyrus rising up in the east and they ch- they're afraid and um, it even says the ends of the earth tremble and they approach and come forward, probably to the trial to help one another and they say to their uh, companions, be strong, right? Like they're trying to encourage one another because this there's a new powerhouse in the east and they're trying to figure out how to do. And um, What does it say they do at the very bottom? They build idols because mm-hmm. that's what you do if you're one of the nations, not Israel, um, to strengthen you, yourselves. And it goes into very specific detail of how they're crafting these idols and saying these idols are strong and there's kind of this double entendre of like uh the idol almost represents their own like security and so when they Mm -hmm. like nail the idol down it's like oh it's not going to be toppled the idol's not going to topple down and it's sort of like this double meaning of like we're crafting this idol that's going to be strong so that we're strong you know Mm -hmm. and it's kind of this weird kind of cool uh, little way that they're kind of giving themselves hope And so then we just kind of drop from the Eastern nations. We're done with them. And then God in verse eight says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. He begins to address the Israelites. And what's so cool is that instead of them trusting in idols, instead of them trusting in crafted things, um, God's saying, I'm going to give you that security. I'm going to give you that um, sense of peace, and I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to uphold you. And we see this kind of wherever setting of the trial, um, the other nations get to look on as God specifically gives out strength and love to this specific people. And I will add a people that doesn't really deserve it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and that's the really interesting thing about this entire passage that I just think is so beautiful is that, um, While the other nations are kind of scrambling about trying to figure out how to address this power in the East, uh, God is um, encouraging them. And there's this kind of, you know, like the metal worker encourages the goldsmith, right, in verse 7, and it's God that's encouraging um, the people of Israel. And it's this kind of interesting contrast between those two um, that I just find very uh, beautiful. And so we have all these lines that, um, you know, are great to put on, like, you know, just to memorize because like, you know, I love verse 10 saying, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with uh, my righteous right hand. These are just great verses to like, if you're just having a really bad day mm-hmm. and like, you feel like everything's just like going wrong. Um, these are great verses to kind of keeping your heart, um, but I'm going to move on just for the sake of time. Um, as we continue forward, um, we have a new section where, uh, he basically talks about how, um, uh, even if the nation, nation nations, uh, nations uh, rage against you, um, they'll surely be ashamed and disgraced. Um, those who oppose you will be nothing and perish. And so he's basically, you know, we're in, uh, picture a trial where Israel's there and then the rest of the nations are there and they're all listening to how God's gonna, is speaking. And basically he's saying, hey, these other people that are all around you at this trial right now, even if they rage against you, They're going to be nothing. Um, They're going to perish. Um, (laughs) You know, it's almost like a kind of jibe at the nations, even as he's speaking this to Israel. Um, And it's really, uh, really one beautiful in one sense, but also we're also meant to kind of like wrestle with that a little bit. Like what's the fate of the other nations? Mm -hmm. Um, Like what, You know if if god's showing this huge favoritism towards israel especially since they don't even deserve it like what's the fate of the rest of these nations and um it is it is something that like by the end we're going to see that israel especially in chapter 42 we're going to see that israel is supposed to be a light to the other nations and so that's that's coming um but for right now, at least we're still kind of working with Israel and God in specific relationship, trying to patch that up before we get to the nations. Um, And yeah, it's just something that will come, but just not in this chapter.
1: Yeah. I kind of was looking at that line where it says, though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. And it kind of reminded me of something else that I've read earlier um, in the Old Testament, looking at the book of Joshua and the book of judges and like that scene that Chapter in the book of Joshua where they're fighting against a nation. I can't remember who they are, but it's the one where Nate or God sends down stones against. The nation they're fighting against, and it says that the stones that God sent sent against them actually killed more of the men than Joshua and his men did. And then mm. something in the Book of Judges, where it talks about, I think it's Judges chapter five, where you have that poem between um, Deborah and Gideon, who are singing this this song or this this um, reciting this poem about the war that they've just um, had. And um, there's a line in there where it talks about how when they're when they were fighting the war, when um, when they had um the war against the nation they were fighting against that the stars in heaven were also warring and it kind of reminds me of how like whenever we're warring against something like you know in the natural like whatever it may be that there's also a spiritual warfare that's going on at the same exact time that we may not be aware of and it just right. kind of reminds me of that
0: yeah no no it's very and we talked about that in the last chapter how um uh, specifically the princes of the world also are getting kind of judged and taken care of um in in God's words and things of that nature. So, yeah, there's yeah. definitely that kind of element of a.
1: a but it was Barack. That's why I think I said Gideon. It wasn't Deborah and Gideon. It was Deborah and Barack. Yeah, 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 yeah Barak. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah, you're,
0: you're all right. You're all right. Um, and so, yeah, the, the interesting thing is by the very end of this kind of section where God's really just encouraging them. Like I said, these verses are things that you just want to read over and over if you are really downtrodden and you're you're almost at your wits' ends. I love verse fourteen where he's saying, Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. This isn't a derogatory thing, by the way. A lot of people kind of think of worms as like derogatory, but in this case I think the metaphor is just to kind of indicate that like he's so small. You know, like mm-hmm. they're small and like they're they're so little. That's kind of the 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 it's just not, they're not something that tends to be noticed all that often. And that's very true in the history of the middle East. They were really this small little city state that never really had a global empire. And he's like, do not be afraid um, for I myself will help you declares the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy one of uh, Israel. That's kind of a powerful point because it's kind of the first time that it gets to show the redeemer, um, uh, God being a redeemer for them. And we get to kind of see some of the beginnings of what that's going to mean in the later chapters. But just keep an eye on that. That overall is that he's, uh, starting to really get into the role of the redeemer, which we'll eventually we'll see more of. Um, also the Holy one of Israel is an interesting thing because, uh, in Leviticus, the people of Israel were called to be, uh, holy. And they never were. Um, they failed at that pretty miserably. And so this interesting thing is from chapter 40 onward, God actually takes on this new name called the Holy One of Israel. And a lot of people um, that I think are really right on point with this one think that the Holy One of Israel, him being called that name, is because he's now saying, I'm going to be holy for you. I'm going to be holy for um, because you were not holy, and it seems to be this um, indication of the future of how he's going to handle their um, infidelity in a lot of ways, their their unholiness, um, and uh, he, in response to that, he's going to be the holy one. He's going to be the one of Israel that's going to be the thing that they could never be, and that's kind of the first hints clue that we should be looking for God doing things in the same way that Israel was supposed to do them. Um, that's going to be um, accomplished in a way that Israel never could. Um, and so that's kind of a hint, again, clue of what's to come as well. Um, we also have just at the end of this, how they're compared to a threshing sledge, which I just think is kind of confusing if you don't know what a threshing sledge is. Um, the way that they would uh, sift wheat in this time period is wheat, if you don't know, has this uh, little... Um, what do you call it? A crumb, essentially it's this part of it that you have to basically uh, separate from the actual part that you can grind into flour. And uh, the way you do that is you make these like threshing sledges that have these like little sharp teeth that basically can separate um, the, Uh, outer shell of the wheat kernel from the wheat itself and so what they would do is they would uh, take this little teeth and they'd toss it up in the air several times and what would happen is when it started to separate um, the heavier parts would fall through the teeth and the um, outside shell was so fragile that it actually would get caught up into the wind and blow away And so this um, gets used all the time in the Bible to kind of uh, talk about the good and the bad and how the good are the wheat part that you use for flour and then the bad are the chaff, the part that gets blown away by the wind. Um, And this kind of gets uh, brought up here in a really cool way in which Israel is now the actual thing that begins to sift out the good from the bad in a sense. But in this case, they're actually sifting out mountains and crushing them and they're sifting out hills. And there's this really cool uh, image of um, the wind picking up the mountains and the gale. And it's just kind of uh, meant to reinforce this idea of how Israel's going to be super powerful um, because of God, not because of themselves, but because of God and he's going to imbue them with strength and they're going to rejoice in God um, because he's giving them, and this power to be so able to, you know, sift mountains, which is really just a cool, powerful metaphor that um, kind of gets lost in us since that's not kind of, we don't, we're not very familiar with how flour is made. <laughs> um, and it's really cool just uh, as a side note. Um, did you have anything, Ashley, before I moved on from that section? No, go ahead. All right. Uh, and so following that, we then move into a section now addressing the poor and the needy. So the first section was addressing kind of the, coastlands and the islands, the Philistine area, second section was addressing Israel. And now we have a section addressing the poor and the needy. And this section is really short, but, um, as a section that often comes up in the book of Isaiah overall, this comes up even in chapters one through 39, just, um, God is always looking out for the poor and the needy in specific. And, um, We see that um, even though they're thirsty, even though their tongues are parched, God's going to do a new thing with them. And he's going to uh, make rivers flow um, from places that are barren, springs in the valleys. He's going to set trees in the deserts. um, And this all is going to happen because of the poor. Uh, And the image here is that the poor kind of live in deserts. They live in a barren wasteland. They live in a barren lifestyle in a lot of ways. And so God does not forget them and he's going to come and give them the things that they've most desired in their life and they don't have to worry about living their entire life in desert wastelands that he's going to be there and he's gonna give them abundance and he's gonna take care of them. And that
1: kind of reminds me of how, you know, God himself is basically water. And I think that's, you know, apparent here in the Old, but that kind of reminds me of the New Testament where Jesus would often pull disciples out of the water like he did with Peter and his brother Andrew, or when he would have moments where he would sit on the water or stand on the water in the boat and he would um, preach a sermon to people or even how he tells people, and if you're thirsty, come to me and drink, you know. So it's the idea that even God not only providing water, but that he, he himself is actually water. Yeah, yeah.
0: no, no, he's... Uh The Bible Project actually has a great video on that where uh, he describes himself as living water Mm -hmm. in one passage, and they have a whole theme video on that. Um, That would take too long to explain here, but it's definitely something to keep your eyes on, is that um, especially by the end when Jesus is hanging on the cross and uh, he is dead, um, the soldiers come and pierce his side, and what comes out of it is blood and water that kind of streams down as a river in a way. And John makes a point in his gospel to really focus in on that and like, say like, look, I noticed this happen and this was very powerful for me. And you get the sense that he is, thinking about the idea of God being living water for the people and noticing that water is gushing out of Jesus' side in that moment. So Mm -hmm. it's just a kind of cool fulfillment of that theme that the Bible Project goes in depth about, which I think is really cool. So you can watch that video over at the Bible Project if you're interested in what that whole theme looks like. But yeah, so um, after this section about the poor and the needy, um, we have this last little section here that um, addresses a new uh, people um, that's really addressed, not even addressing people at all but addressing uh, the idols in particular the idols that have been crafted and really what you were saying earlier uh, Ashley about the spiritual powers of the universe Mm -hmm. I think this is also kind of being addressed to them in this um, because uh, God then kind of turns to them in this trial and says tell us you idols what is going to happen tell us the former things and basically kind of challenges them to like predict the future and Mm -hmm. you know predict the uh, predict how things are going to fall and Um, declaring the things to come and yeah they can't really do anything and there's this even like Mm -hmm. subtle little jive at the end of verse 23 where he says like do anything do something whether good or bad you know at least do something um, that we may be dismayed or filled with fear but uh, you're less than nothing kind
1: of reminds me of when elijah is challenging the prophets of baal to a competition, so um and I forgot which book that happens in. It's gotta be first or second king since it's Elijah. Um but yeah that reminds me of that competition they had where they have the different altars and they soak um them both with water but I think God's has more water on it and so the prophets of Baal are like crying out to Baal all day and all night and then nothing is happening and so Elijah starts to mock them um, about it and then so he soaks the altar of God with, with water because they're having a competition about who the real God is and whoever this real God is and that's who they're going to worship and so God sends fire down from heaven and he not only consumes all the water but consumes the sacrifice on the altar and I was like yeah God is definitely like I'm not afraid of a competition like we can <laughs> we can compete if that's what you want to do but you're going to lose so.
0: <laughs> yep yep Yep, exactly. And so at the very end in verse 25 through 29, um, after it appears that these idols are continuing to be silent and not predicting the future, God kind of revels in how he's predicting the future and says, look, Reminder, I'm stirring up this guy from the north, which I I think you're right, Ashley, we were talking about this earlier, that this one from the north is probably also Cyrus. Uh, Persia would have been just up to the north of Babylon, so um, there's probably this kind of uh, thing of um, it being stirred up from the north to conquer Babylon. Also, this is also meant to call back the fact that way back in the very beginning of Isaiah 1 and in Jeremiah 2, God stirs up the people peoples of the north to conquer jerusalem and so there's this kind of metaphor of Mm -hmm. anyone being stirred up from the north in general is usually god stirring something up that's then going to conquer someone else Um, and that's kind of the theme that happens when anyone gets called from the north um, because the idea is that uh, usually campaigns would go from north to south and so it's that idea of like there being something on the north and The fear of something being up there that you don't know and then they come downwards towards you and it's this kind of powerful metaphor. Did you have something on that? I
1: was trying to make that connection because I know that we mentioned earlier in this chapter about God stirring up someone from the east who was also Cyrus and so I was trying to make that connection between how is Cyrus coming from the east but then also coming from the north as well and I was reading the commentary and this is just one who um, brought this up but the idea that you know the Persians and the Medes so it was like the idea that the Medes were coming from one direction either the or the north and the Persians was coming from the other and i was like okay that's an interesting you know idea i didn't think about that yeah but. that's
0: interesting i i do think it has a lot to do with your perspective too like uh, when it's talked about in the east we're in the perspective of the philistines in the west so from their perspective Cyrus would be towards the East generally, you know, remember this is poetry, so it doesn't have to be completely accurate. Um, but generally, yeah, Cyrus would be towards the East and then geographically Persia and Babylon. If you're from Babylon's perspective, uh, Persia would be more North. And so, you know, it kind of depends on where you are, what, what it would be, but yeah, there, there's definitely different ways that you can kind of figure it out, um, based off of just where, where different areas are and things. But, um, I do think some of it also is just kind of metaphors based off of other themes in the Bible, um, that we see as well. So, uh, this interesting, he treads on the rulers as if they were mortal mortar and clay. That's an image that gets brought up a lot in the prophetic books of, um, clay and how someone shapes clay. Um, sort of uh, shows the power and sovereignty of whoever is in charge. Um, we're told of this from the beginning so that we could know or beforehand so that we could say he was right. So this is the whole thing is that God's basically prophesying that this powerhouse is going to come and it's not the idols that prophesied this because they're still silent. It's God that's saying this. And so he kind of revels in this at the very end in verse 26 and following. He's like, no one else told this, right? And like no one else foretold it. I am the first one to tell Zion. Here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. That'll come up again, a messenger of good news. Um, But uh, I look, there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel. That's definitely a reference to the principalities. Um, They're often called the divine counsel in the Old Testament. So uh, that's kind of of a call to that. And then uh, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Talking about the idols, their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Um, they're just like a breath, and then they're they're here and gone, right? And so, yeah, we have this really cool kind of re uh reciting of what he said at the very beginning of the chapter it's kind of two bookends of kind of the main point which is that i'm raising up someone uh, whether east or north it's some powerhouse that's going to uh, be the really important factor to how the world's going to be shaped and the only person that's prophesying this is not these um crafted idols but it's god himself um and it's the god of the israelites which is kind of really powerful to think about. So, yeah. Yeah, that's the overall overall chapter 41. Ashley, did, did you have any final thoughts on this before we close out? No, that's it. All righty. Well, thank you so much for listening to um this episode and we'll be back in your feed again next week to talk about the servant of the lord, which is going to be a fun chapter overall. Thanks so much, guys.
1: Right, bye-bye.